First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, John writes, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. In this chapter, John's focus is going to be on our salvation. And John will give us reasons why Jesus was made manifest or Jesus was revealed. When you see the term manifest or revealed, think incarnated. That means in reality, he comes to us. He was revealed in order so that we could have fellowship. We learned that in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And to now, we learn that he was revealed to take away our sins in verses 4 and 5. And then to destroy the works of the devil in chapter 3, verse 8. To reveal God's love and bestow God's life. That's what we're going to discover in chapter 4. Verse 9, if you just turn the page, it says in verse 9 of chapter 4, In this the love of God was manifested, made known, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. We Christians are called on... To hate sin and then forsake sin. We know that it's our sin that breaks our fellowship with God. We know that it is our sin that caused God to send Jesus to suffer and die. But is that sufficient reason to hate sin and flee from it? You would think so, but not necessarily so. The person in sin's grip becomes a slave to sin. And Jesus reiterates that in the New Testament. He says, you are the servant of the thing that you serve. John will define sin as lawlessness in verse 4. What he means is that sin is a transgressing of the law or the law of God. John points out that the Christian who abides in Christ, now remember, when he uses the term abide, he means has fellowship. The fellowship that's described in chapter 1. The fellowship that's described in chapter 2. And remember, I've reiterated to you the difference between relationship and fellowship. Relationship is what you have by virtue of the new birth and fellowship is what you have by virtue of intimacy and communication and proximity. 
And so John points out that the Christian who abides in Christ, that is, who has fellowship, the fellowship that we just talked about in chapters 1 and 2, will not deliberately and habitually break God's law. Christians sin. And sin will typically take two different forms. The things that we know we're doing wrong and the things that we're completely unaware that they're wrong. David writes about this in Psalm 19:12 when he says, "Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins," it says in Psalm 19:13. "So that they may not rule over me, then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression." In verse 6, the verb tense that says, whosoever abides in him does not sin, probably should be translated, does not habitually sin, does not find himself or herself in that constant state of rebellion and rejection. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 3 makes it clear that the unsaved sin constantly because they live in the flesh and are for the devil. But the Christian has a new nature. We've been given a new life and a new nature and it's been placed within us. And so John is going to argue that you no longer have to be a slave of sin. And so in this chapter... God the Father lavishes his love on us in verse 1. Calls us children in verse 2. Will someday make us like Jesus at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. Then God the Son dies for our sins in verses 4 and 5. Destroys the work of the devil in verse 8. Gives us the opportunity to live above sin in verse 9. And later in the chapter we discover God the Holy Spirit indwells us, empowers us in verse 24. So you see God the Father at work, God the Son at work, God the Holy Spirit at work. And so he begins with our great need, deliverance from sin. In verse 4 it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. I want you to, again, think about the context. In verse 3, he defines purity. And everyone who has this hope in him, that's Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. So we have the definition of purity in verse 3. And now we have the definition of sin in verse 4. And you'll notice in the passage he reiterates and uses the word sin over and over again. It's the Greek word hamartia. It's a word that means to miss the mark. It can also mean to fail to meet the standard. And so what he's basically reminding us of is that sin cannot exist with the new nature that's been derived from the new birth. God's law is the line or the mark or the line of demarcation or the standard. In other words, 
it becomes transgression the moment that the Lord says, I don't want you to do this. And so you'll remember when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, were there 613 commandments? No. Could Adam and Eve smoke pot in the garden? Yeah, there was no prohibition against it. There was only one prohibition. Of the fruit of the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, you shall not eat. He gives one commandment, one instruction. If God never told his people, if God never told you, if God never told me what we should and we shouldn't do, then we would never have a standard and we wouldn't know just how sinful we are. So lawlessness here means more than just the absence or the presence of instruction. It means more than just the absence or the presence of a list of what you can and can't do. Here, the idea, it means rebellion. It's the presence of rebellion. Those who keep on sinning admit that they're a part of the rebellion. And so... What are we to think about sin? You know, I heard the story of some college students that were going to pull a prank on their fraternity brother. And so they put some Limburger cheese on his mustache. Just very gently, they rubbed Limburger cheese all over him while he slept. And when he woke up about an hour later, he went, man, this room stinks. And then he got up and he went into the hallway and he goes, man, the hallway stinks. And then he went down into the common area and he goes, man, the living room stinks. And then he walks outside. He's trying to figure out the source of the odor. And he goes, man, the whole world stinks. And the real problem was right under his nose. Just like sin. You know, years ago, a correspondent for the London Times was researching and reporting on all of the problems, all of the pain, all of the issues, all of the terrible things that are going on in the world. And the article had this question. It said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote, the now famous reply, dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. At the bottom, at the base of the world's problems, G.K. Chesterton figured it out. The problem isn't always you. The problem is often me, what I've done, my sin. He's pointing out that Jesus has come into the world, not as some joyride from heaven, but to deal with the problem of sin, to expose the problem of sin and to deal with the problem of sin because sin is a human problem. We're all sinners. The Bible makes no exception. It says 
all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We live in a world where sometimes even Christians downplay the wickedness or the horror of sin. We call it a mistake. We call it a shortcoming. We call it a failure. We call it a character flaw. The list could go on and on and on. There's lots of reasons why we make up in order to not deal fully with the problem that we, that we have. According to the Bible, sin is a transgression of the law. It's a crossing of the line. Sin means going your own way rather than God's way. Sin means living according to the standard of yourself rather than God's word. Sin, according to the Bible, is disbelieving God and disobeying God. Sin is neglecting and ignoring God rather than honoring him and worshiping him. Sin is denying and rejecting God rather than accepting God. And so we know that God is perfect. And therefore, only perfection is acceptable to God. If God allowed anyone or anything less than perfect into heaven, then heaven itself would become imperfect. And so sin is imperfection, falling short of God's glory and God's perfect nature. According to the Bible, human beings are not only sinners but sinful. Theologians call this, we're sinners by nature and by choice. And human beings are sinful because they've transgressed God's law. In brief, if you turn to Romans chapter 3, in verses 10 through 18, I'm going to read that whole passage. In Romans 13, 10, it says, as it is written, there's none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, unquote. Paul gives this laundry list of everything that it is and everything that it does, and it is bad. In the Bible, sin fundamentally includes the idea of unbelief of not really believing what God says about your spiritual condition. Because I want you to think about this for just a moment. For the person who doesn't believe the spiritual condition and how bad it is, they're also going to be reluctant to believe God's solution to the problem of sin, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is missing the mark coming short of the glory of God. Sin is error. It's not just simply making a mistake. It's leaving the path of righteousness. It is ungodliness, lawlessness. 
according to the Bible, it entered the world through Adam in Romans 5.12. And because of sin, all human beings are spiritually dead forever and destined to die physically. But there is deliverance from sin. And that's the good news. That's the meaning of the word gospel. That's the meaning of what the New Testament says, that there is a solution to the penalty of sin and to the power of sin and even eventually to the presence of sin. We are delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin. We will eventually be delivered from the presence of sin. And it's found in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why the Bible urges you and urges me to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, and find forgiveness in Christ. And so in contrast, those who refuse to confess their sin, those who refuse to repent of their sin, they don't find forgiveness. They live in opposition to God. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter according to John, what kind of religious profession or what kinds of religious claims that a person makes. John is going to make the argument I don't care what you say. What I care about is not simply what you say, but what you do. And so he gives our great provision. Jesus took away our sins. In verse 5 it says, And you know that he, that's Jesus, was manifested, made known, revealed to take away our sins. I want you to note something about that word sins. It's a plural. When it's used in a singular situation like S-I-N, it means the sin nature. But sins here means the transgressions, the disobedience, the rebellion, everything that you've said and done that's wrong. And so when you read this and you know, it implies that you've, you've heard the gospel, you know this. Jesus was made known to take away our sin and sins, and in him there is no sin, singular. That is the sin nature. And we could even say plural. He was incarnated to take away our sin. So how is it even possible that Jesus can actually take away our sin? Remove our sin. How does he do it? How does that even become possible? How does he take it away and then make us acceptable to God? Well, he gives us a clue. In him, there's no sin. The reason why he brings that up is because he's a suitable sacrifice. Remember, the Jewish people would offer a lamb without spot or blemish, and Jesus is the lamb of God. And you'll remember in John's gospel, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible teaches that because Jesus lived a perfect life and sacrificed himself for sin, People can be completely forgiven. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation. Remember, that means the satisfying solution, the satisfaction. 
He is the satisfaction for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sin of the whole world. He suffered for our sakes, bearing our sin in order to make us acceptable to God. And only according to the Bible, only, only, only Jesus can fill the gap between a holy God and a sinful people. Jesus dies on the cross, taking our place, taking all of our wrongdoing on himself, saving us from the ultimate consequences of sin, which is judgment. And so the the death of Jesus satisfies the justice of God. But it also makes it possible for the believer to stop living a life of sin. What does that mean? Remember, Jesus came to abolish sin. But you're later going to read in verse 8, to destroy the works of the devil. And so here's the point that Jonah is making. Let me try and make it clear and simple and simple. We're called to renounce sin. That means forsake it. But we're not only called on to renounce sin, we're also called to battle against sin. You know, I hate to use the illustration of cancer because some people might be tempted to believe that cancer is sin, and it isn't. It's the result of sin. It's because we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. But in my illustration, what I want to point out to you is imagine, tragically, you're diagnosed with cancer. In order to deal with the problem, you're going to have to admit that you have the problem. But imagine the doctor says, it's not good enough for you to admit that you have a problem. We have to fight. We're going to have to enter into a regimen. We're going to have to wage war against this illness. We're going to have to fight it. And in direct proportion to our fighting it, that's going to determine how the war is going to end. And so imagine Jesus fills the gap. It satisfies the justice. And in verse 3, it says he is pure. That's the present tense. And in verse 7, it says he is righteous. It's in the present tense. The reason why I bring this up is because in verse 3 and in verse 7, when it says that Jesus is pure and that Jesus is righteous and it's in the present tense, let me just be blunt. Was Jesus pure in the past? Yes. Is Jesus pure in the present? Yes. Was Jesus righteous in the past? Yes. Is Jesus righteous in the present? The answer is yes. Because he's pure in the present and because he's righteous in the present, John is making the argument that he's still alive. Jesus is alive. Jesus is still pure. Jesus still doesn't have any sin. It makes perfect sense that in the present, well, let me put it a little bit differently. In the past, was Jesus opposed to sin? Yes. In the present, is Jesus still opposed to sin? The answer is yes. And so John's argument is going to be 
then those who love Jesus and those who follow Jesus and those who want to be like Jesus should be opposed to what Jesus is opposed to. And so when it says, and you know he was manifested to take away our sins. The most important question that I could possibly ask you about this text is has he taken away your sins? Has he taken them away? And you see, he has. Hopefully for most of you. He's taken away your sins. Because remember, you love him. You believe him. You've confessed that, uh, your sin. You've repented and you turned it and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. If Jesus has taken away your sin, verse 6 tells us the answer is found. If you really want to know the truth to the answer to that question, it's found in your present experience. Because John is going to tie together not just simply what you believe about Jesus or what you've confessed about Jesus, but what you're currently experiencing in Jesus. That's why it says... In verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. John is going to make the point before I get into the, the nitty gritty of the text. That one of the ways that you should be able to answer the question. Is to answer the question. Do I keep on sinning? Or will I Live a life that's different. And so now, when he says whoever abides in him, remember, that means lives in him, dwells in him, has fellowship in him. Follow John's argument. You're joined to Christ, so live for him. Live pure. Live without sin. Whoever abides, it's that Greek word menon, to habitually live to permanently live, to constantly remain. John will use the exact same verb in his gospel. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, you know where it says, he's the vine, we're the branches. A branch lives in the vine. The branch lives, draws its sustenance, its life, its nutrients. He is the vine, we're the branches. And so, we live in Christ. And if we're living in Christ and we're living in the power of Christ, then that means we're living absent the power of sin. We're living present the power of purity. The picture of complete union with Christ means complete disconnection from sin. Here's John's argument. Are you connected to Christ? If the answer is yes, John is saying, then you're not connected to sin. You can't be connected to Christ and connected to sin. And remember what we've already seen. The picture is complete union with Jesus. And because it's complete union, it's disconnection with sin. Light is disconnected from darkness. The sin that believers commit in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, do not come from or belong to 
their life in Christ. And so here's John's argument. You can't live in sin and in Christ at the same time. He's saying that the two are mutually exclusive. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's something else that's going on. In this simple sentence, he's also confronting the false teachers who are saying false things. In what sense? He's talking about the wicked teachers who were making the outrageous claims. Some of them were actually teaching that they were sinless. And John knew that they were lying. And by the way, I've met people who believed that they were sinless. Seriously. I've talked to people who, who say, I don't sin. And I go, really? And then I pour a pitcher of water on their head. And I hear what comes out of their mouth. And I go, I thought so. <laughs> no, I didn't really pour a pitcher of water on their head. I was actually talking to a Christian science lady. And, and Christian scientists don't believe that there is such a thing as sin. And so in their worldview, if they say, I don't have sin, it's because they don't believe it even exists. They believe that sin is ignorance. They believe that the problem that human beings face is that they are ignorant of the truth. And if you just know the right thing, that you'll be fine. And this was very much what the, the false teachers in John's day were teaching. They taught that they were unable to sin. They claimed to be holy. They claimed to be superior. And so what is John saying? Christians should be sinless. But not the kind of sinlessness that the false teachers claimed. Reality bears witness that sin is still very, very much a part of our lives. And even a part of the believer's life. So then how can the Christian live a life free from sin? We first become aware and sensitive to sin's presence. Then we acknowledge sin's presence. And we engage in a sincere repentance from sin. We accept God's forgiveness in Christ. In order to do this, you have to believe what God believes about your sin. And then you have to believe what God's solution is to the problem of sin. We accept his forgiveness. We accept the one who already took our punishment. So some people claimed, like today, to have a special relationship with God in spite of willful, persistent, committed sin. Imagine you're talking to a person who's completely living a lifestyle. I'm not talking about an incident where you've done something sinful. I'm talking about when you wake up in the morning and you live your life and you go to bed at night every moment of every day living in willful, continuous, rebellious disobedience and that person says, I love God. I love him and I believe in Jesus and I believe that God loves me and I believe that, that Jesus is okay with what I'm doing. This is the person that John is trying to address. Persistent sin proves that they're not living in the Lord and that they're not abiding in Christ. And that's why John says, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Does this, does the Christian ever sin? Of course he does. Well, does this mean you never knew God? That's not what the text is saying. 
What is the text saying? The Christian who imposes on grace and trivializes forgiveness, the Christian who uses grace and forgiveness as an excuse to continue in sin, doesn't understand grace and doesn't understand sin. The very meaning of repentance includes the idea of sorrow for sin and regret for sin and a willingness to turn from sin. And here's the little test that you can take to determine whether or not you've truly repented. It's so simple, it's going to blow your mind. The moment that you say concerning something that you've done, I'm sorry, and you say, I don't want to do that anymore. It's wrong, and I don't want to do it anymore. For the person who says, but you know, Friday night is coming, and I can't wait for Friday night. I can't wait to be able to partake in that sin once again. The person who says, I'm sorry, and then dreams about doing it again has not repented. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Repentance, by the very de definition of the word, means not only a willingness to confess what you've done is wrong, it's a willingness to forsake it and leave it. John is insisting that as far as people continue in sin, to the degree that they continue in sin, that's the degree that they don't know God. And so here's what John is doing. He's placing an ideal standard. The ideal standard for the believer is don't sin. Christians are free from the penalty of sin. We're becoming free from the power of sin. We will eventually become free from the presence of sin. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, there's more in the death of Christ on the cross than simply our salvation from judgment, as wonderful as that is. Through his death, Christ broke the power of the sin principle in our lives. The theme of Romans chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 is this identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. Christ not only died for me, but I died with him. Paul's argument in Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that when Jesus died for you, you died in him. And the illustration that I love to use is the witness protection program. Imagine you've committed crimes. And the FBI says, we're going to put you in the witness protection program. We're going to give you a whole new identity. We're going to give you, we're going to, it's going to be as if your past never existed. And we're going to give you a new life and a fresh start. I asked my dad about Sammy the Bull Gravana. He goes, I knew Sammy the Bull. He goes, yeah, I, I knew him in New York. Sammy the Bull Gravana was on trial for murdering several people, and he turned state's evidence against John Gotti, and they put him in the witness protection program. They gave him a whole new identity. They sent him to Phoenix with a whole new identity. He got a great big Cadillac. He got license plates that said, Made Man. And then he started selling drugs out of his trunk. So is it possible that you can give a person a whole new identity and a fresh start, but they live their life as if it never happened? That's what it's like to be a Christian. 
who is given a whole new life and a fresh start, but they live their life as if Jesus didn't really die for them, as if he didn't really love them, as if he didn't really place his Holy Spirit inside of you, as if you don't have any other option than to continue in sin. And so here's what John is arguing. He's arguing that while we're here, while we're living in this body and we're living in these circumstances, we have to claim the power of God's Holy Spirit inside of us and then honor God's word and seek his love and service to avoid sin. Here's the problem. If you're not really born again, if all you've done is read the Bible and all you've done is, is read the words, but you've never actually forsaken your sin, you've never confessed your sin to Jesus, you've never invited him into your life, you've never actually been truly born again, if the Holy Spirit has never come inside of you, then this becomes an impossibility. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing more frustrating than to try to live your life as a Christian when in fact you're not a Christian. And so, the more we understand that we're new creatures in Christ, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, remember what it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The word creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17 is a word that's linked to our word species. In other words, we use that word to describe a brand new life form. When you discover something that's, that's never been known before and you give it a new name, that's what the Bible says you are. When you come into a right relationship with Christ, you are brand new. The more we understand that, the more we walk in love, the more we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we deny the flesh, the more we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, if you walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so when we're born again, in that born again nature, that born again nature inside of us says, I don't want to be a slave to sin. I don't want to always have to say yes to sin. When we're born again, we are given permission to refuse sin. And so when John says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Little children is a reference again to believers. Let no one deceive you. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it's because they're righteous. Even as Christ is righteous. Righteous doesn't mean I did a good deed on a particular day. I did a specific act of kindness. He's talking about kindness as a way of life. So what were the false teachers saying? Little children, let no one deceive you. 
the, the false teachers are saying, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter who you love. As was said by the President of the United States in the State of the Union address. By the way, just because something's legal doesn't make it right. Do you realize that it's possible to legalize certain things that are harmful and even wicked and evil? These false teachers were saying, it doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter who you love, that's code for sexual immorality. The false teachers were living immoral lives. They were living immoral lives and then claiming to love God. And so the person who claims to love God and serve God and know God and live a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience, the Bible has very limited patience. John Chrysostom, the church father, wrote, to sin is human, but to persevere in sin is not human. It's altogether satanic, he wrote. I've told you before that the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is when the Christian falls into sin, they will get up. They'll confess their sin. They'll walk away from it. But the unbeliever and the make-believer, if they fall in the mud, they'll remain in the mud. And they don't want to be washed off. And so look what it says in verse 8. Our great promise, freedom to live above sin. And so he says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. That he might destroy the works of the devil. When people continue to live like the devil. And sin like the devil. They reveal their true allegiance to that's exactly right satan in the form of a serpent was the first liar he was the first rebel in genesis chapter 3 verse 1 remember he's the first one to say has god really said this god said remember in the day you eat thereof you shall surely die and satan's first words are is that true is that really true did he really say that Satan's the author, he's the founder, he's the director of the rebellion. So here John's argument, when people continue to sin, it proves that they haven't completely abandoned their loyalty to Satan. I'm going to admit something that I don't think I've ever admitted. When I moved to Colorado, I just didn't feel like it was really home. I had grown up in Southern California went to school in the Bay Area. I was an Oakland Raider fan. <laughs> I know, I can hear it. Ooh, ooh. 1967. 1967. 1968, 69, 70. Do you realize you go through the whole decade of the 70s and the whole decade of the 80s and the whole decade of the 90s, I had sold my soul to the football devil. <laughs> so the first year in Colorado, couldn't root for the Broncos. Second year, couldn't do it. 
fifth year couldn't do it. It took 10 years and a real Denver Bronco coming to our church for me to finally, <laughs> finally say, okay, I'm going to root for the Broncos. Hallelujah, someone says. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but can you imagine how long it took me to abandon the old loyalty and embrace the new loyalty? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've struggled with sin. It's been difficult for you to abandon the old loyalty and to embrace the new one. He says, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned since the beginning. According to the Bible, the devil doesn't have children. He doesn't have spawn. He doesn't have offspring. But in a way, he does. His children are those people who imitate him, who believe him. The devil sinned from the beginning ever before the, since before the creation of the world. Satan sins. He promotes sin. And so when the false teachers spoke lies without remorse, without repentance, without regret, they revealed that they belonged to Satan. And those who followed these teachers were declaring their love and their loyalty to Satan. Now, isn't this interesting that John even brings up the issue of Satan and the devil? You know, it might sound harsh to you. Read it again in verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. That sounds a little harsh, huh? But I want you to turn to John's gospel again in chapter 8. In John chapter 8, there's an interesting statement that begins, oh, I'm thinking right around verse 42, where Jesus says to the religious leaders, if God were your father, you would, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. He's, he's basically saying, God sent me. Here's what he's saying. Jewish people, the God who you say is your God, he's my father and he sent me. He says in verse 43, why don't you understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Verse 44, you are of your father. What does it say? Does that sound harsh? It's on Jesus' lips. You're of your father, the devil. Why does he say that? And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources because he's a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Here's what Jesus is basically saying. There's a group of people who believe what he says. And then there's a group of people who doesn't believe what he says. And because of that, a loyalty is assigned. Satan sins. Satan promotes sin. 
Satan promotes lies. The false teachers were lying about what John and the others were saying. Those who followed these teachers, they were declaring their love and their loyalty to Satan. And it's exactly what we do. When we believe a lie or we walk in a lie or we walk in rebellion. Do you realize that when we lie, we're in effect saying, I love you, Satan. I love what you love because I want to do what you do. I want to embrace what you've embraced. I want to be a part of the rebellion. There's a song that says, You are more than the choices that you've made. You're more than the sum of your past mistakes. You're more than the problems you create. You've been remade. And there's much about that song and those lyrics that's true. You are more, but you're not less. In other words, if we sing the song with the idea that it doesn't really matter what we say or what we do, it's missing the point even of the song itself. It says you've been remade, and that's John's argument. You've been remade. You've been born again. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been given the resources that you need. Satan is a liar. Jesus is the truth. Satan loves lies. Satan hates the truth. And when he lies, he remains consistent with his character. But there's a cure for sin. You've been remade. Does it really bother you that John believes in a real devil? And he mentions him in this chapter. And he mentions him in this context that he's a real enemy. That he sinned from the beginning in verse 8. And by the way, that he has children who are not of God, whose lives are marked by sin in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest or known. He's also going to point out that this evil one produces murderous offspring in verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. We're going to talk more about that in verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so he's going to say, guess what? There are results, not only of what you believe, but the way you act out. And so he says in verse 9, whoever's been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. At first glance, you read that, wait a minute, whoever's been born of God does not sin. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving, we're fooling ourselves. Which is it? Do we or don't we? Do you want to know the answer? I know you're looking. Yeah. Experience tells us that every Christian sins. True or false? It is true. Experience has told us that sin still has a hold on us. Even for the true Christian. But here's what he's saying. Whoever's been born of God does not sin. In what sense? In the sense that we don't want to. 
You know, before I became a Christian, the issue wasn't whether or not I wanted to sin. It was, did I have a reasonable expectation that I was going to get away with it? Not only did I want to do it, I looked for opportunities to do it with the least amount of consequences. See, you laugh. And I don't mean to speak for you, I won't do that. You know your own heart. You know what you were like before you became a Christian. You know what you were like. I wish I could say to you that the worst things that I've ever done, I did as an unbeliever. But it wouldn't be true. The worst things I've ever done, I did it as a Christian because I knew better. And I had the power of God and the presence of God and the word of God. I I was without excuse. You know, before I became a Christian, sinners sin. That's what they do. Dogs bark, cats meow, sinners sin. So what does this mean? When he says, whoever's been born of God does not sin, doesn't want to, for his seed remains in him. What does that mean? It means that the presence of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that thing that's been placed inside of you, that's made you born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, cries out inside of you, I want to live my life for God and for Jesus, free from the bondage and the slavery of sin, free to love Jesus, free to love my brother, free to walk according to what God wants me to to walk. The born-again Christian doesn't doesn't just simply not desire to sin and renounce sin and recognizes that sin is incompatible with who you are. And one of the ways that you can tell that you're really born again is when you sin, a little voice whispers in your ear, that's not you. That isn't who you are. God saved you. Christ forgave you. He's reconciled you to the Father. This isn't who you are. This isn't what you were meant to be. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God has set us apart from sin so that we can be pure and holy. And some Bible teachers wrongly teach that that the Christian doesn't sin in the new nature, even though the body might be subject to sin. What's problematic about that is that has way more to do with Gnostic teaching than historical biblical Christianity. The Gnostics believed that your body and this world was evil and your spirit was good. And that the body couldn't influence the spirit and the spirit couldn't influence the body. But that's not what biblical Christianity teaches. John is saying that true believers don't make sin a habit. It doesn't become a way of life. The true Christian is not indifferent to God's love or to God's commands. So being born again is more than just a fresh start. It's a rebirth into a new family where we're given new hope. And so if you're tempted... If you're struggling, if you're weak, if you constantly seem to lose the battle with sin, welcome to the club. 
But guess what? The Bible says there is victory and there is hope. But we have to engage in the battle. Someone used that famous illustration. They said, I sometimes feel like there's two dogs fighting inside of me. They're vicious and they're at each other's throat. And one's a great big black dog and one's a great big white dog. And someone said, which one wins? And he said, the one I feed. You're going to have to starve your flesh and sin and temptation and feed your spirit. You feed the new nature. You starve the old nature. You cut off the flesh's supply. You make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts like it says in Romans chapter 13 verse 14. Because you have a new nature. There's a new provision. You feed the inward person You hear God's word and you pray God's word and you fellowship with God's people. And then you refuse to allow the old nature to dominate you. And you invite the new nature to inform your thoughts, to inform your heart. When temptation comes to play, with you. Instead of playing with it, you need to flee from it. Do you want to have victory over sin? Just a couple of quick things. Number one, walk in God's word by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Number two, stay away from tempting situations. I heard the story of a lady who was having a weight problem and she goes, I'm not going to go to to, to, to Dunkin' Donuts. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. Driving, driving. There's the donut shop. Well, maybe if, if there's a parking space right in front of the donut shop, I know that's God's way of saying it's okay to have a donut. And so she pulls into the parking lot and she goes, I had to circle 10 times until the space finally opened up. That's playing a dangerous game. And number three, seek help and fellowship and friendship with other believers who can offer prayer, who can offer support, who can offer accountability. Walk in God's word. Stay away from the temptation. Get help. Cultivate your life in such a way that you get to live life differently. And guess what? You'll have a little more success and a little less failure and a little more and a little more and a little more because God has given you the ability. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know that the sacrifice of Jesus has delivered us from the penalty of sin. We know that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is delivering us at this very moment from the power of sin. We know that the Father in heaven will one day call us home. Just like John describes in the book of Revelation where a voice in heaven says, come up here. And we'll fully and finally 
be removed from even the presence of sin. And so, Lord, we want to live our lives in victory, overcoming sin, walking in newness of life and joy and purity. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.